It's Monday, August the 16th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who is in the business of podcasting. Uh, Rather than give you the list of every Hoover Fellow who's doing a podcast, it's probably simpler for you to go to Hoover's website, which is hoover.org, and click on the tab where it says Publications. Go to the next tab that says Podcast, and you can uh, see what we offer in the range of economics, history, foreign policy, domestic policy. You can subscribe to any and all of our podcast. You can also sign up for what we call the monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcast uh, to your inbox uh, every month. Hoover podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is Dr. Colonel Joseph Felter. Joe Felter is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the William J. Perry Fellow at the Stanford-based Center for International Security Cooperation. He returned to the Hoover Institution after a tour of duty at the Pentagon, where he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia, which means he was a principal advisor to the nation's senior military leadership for all policy matters pertaining to development, implementation of defense strategies, and plans for that region. A former U.S. Army Special Forces and Foreign Area Officer, Colonel Felter served in a variety of special operations and diplomatic assignments. He also participated in multiple combat deployments, including Afghanistan, where he commanded the COMASAF Counterinsurgency Advisory and Assistance Team. Joe, thanks for coming back on the podcast on rather short notice. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. So obviously, Afghanistan is going to be the conversation today. You and I last talked about this topic in late April of 2020, not long long after President Trump had announced an agreement in which U.S. and NATO allies uh, would withdraw all troops from Afghanistan uh, over the next year and a half. Um, Looking back on that, Joe, we have questions here. First question, was it the right thing to do at the right time? Second question, Joe, uh, the chances of the Afghan government and the Taliban reaching a lasting peace. The third question, Joe, did we really have an exit strategy, a goal of getting out? Yes, but really a clean exit strategy. So a lot of questions to throw at you. And I know you're processing a lot of information and you must be taking this all personally because you've served there and you know people on the ground. Um, you can, why don't you just take this in any direction you want to go, Joe? Sure. Well, Bill, maybe I'll hit, hit your questions. And um, what was what was number one? That was it the right thing to do. The right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so, Bill, I mean, well, first of all, you're right. It is a bit personal for me. So maybe I'm not entirely objective. You know, certainly had know a lot of people that didn't come back from Afghanistan, and and uh, you know, just you want to believe that our two decades there uh, did did some did some good. But uh, was it the right thing to do? Um, I this is my personal opinion. I I think that a small presence, given the interest we had. On multiple levels, a small presence like we had, you know, the, the twenty five hundred troops, along with uh, would amount to double that with NATO allies and and enough contractors to keep the Air Force flying. I, I personally thought that that was about right, given given our national interests, and, and until conditions changed, that, that maybe we need to maintain that capability. But just let me just maybe for, for those that, that thought it was the right thing to do from a policy level, and that was certainly uh, President Trump and President Biden. Given that, I just think the way it was executed was was clearly uh, it was tragic. It it, it just it was uh, mismanaged, um, poorly executed, uh, poorly coordinated, uh, and 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 even if you wanted to leave Afghanistan, I don't think anyone can say we left it in the way that you know the United States of America would would want to want to leave. Okay, and. Uh, uh- I can go any other direction you like on this, this bill. I just thought I'd take a breath. No, let's continue on this. Uh, so then the next idea, Joe, the idea behind doing this was that you could put the Afghan government, the existing Afghan government, the now former Afghan government, and the Taliban in a room, they'd reach a lasting peace. Um, was that ever a realistic goal or was that just being Pollyannish? 
It was a stretch bill, but I'd said, you know, when the United States had some forces there, we, we did have some leverage. The Taliban, you know, there's a term in negotiations. I, I did a did a couple of courses at the Harvard Kennedy School many, many years ago. And if, if you know, uh, Roger Fisher had this term called the best alternative to a negotiated agreement that he used a lot, the BATNA. And for, for the Taliban, you know, if they thought that they could win by fighting, they would fight. You know, if there was some uncertainty that, that they couldn't win by fighting, uh, hence, if there was air power there that could prevent them from taking big cities or certainly Kabul or massing their forces, maybe they'd be open to some negotiations. I mean, I certainly don't trust the Taliban, but but it, if you're going to have any chance of negotiating effectively, you're, you're, the other side, so to speak, has to feel like their best way to advance their interests is, is not through fighting. And when the United States left and the, and the Taliban realized that there's going to be no uh, air power at the end of the, the radios of any of the Afghan security forces, the military, the police, Boy, they thought they could win it by fighting, and that's exactly what they did. And as soon as we did leave and took took our forces out, that's when you saw the real uh, advances in, in the offensives. And and back last year when we were talking, we'd hoped that the agreement, uh, you know, given that we were committed to staying, uh, it was a little bit more conditions based. Um, the Taliban agreed to do to certain things, and we had a little bit of leverage. But but no leverage now, and you saw the result. It happened a lot faster than anyone predicted. But the the, the end result was probably not in question when when we pulled out. Right. And then finally, Joe, the question of um, the U.S. exit strategy uh, for all the talk about this being a repeat of what happened in Vietnam in 1975 and, you know, famously people being evacuated from the American embassy. Uh, this also reminds me of the movie The Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, Mel Gibson, one of his uh, first movies, he plays a journalist in Indonesia in the 1960s when that government is overthrown in the, the final 15 minutes of the movie or the chaos that ensues in trying to get out of Jakarta alive. And looking at the pictures today on television, Joe, and I remind our listeners, by the way, that uh, Joe and I are recording this a little after 11 o'clock in the morning on the West Coast. So it's, I think it was 11 hour time difference between here in Afghanistan, Joe. So it's late at night there. Um, but you look at these pictures on TV and it's chaos. And you just kind of wonder, why didn't the United States have a cleaner strategy for getting out of this in terms of getting our people evacuated from Kabul, but also finding those people who we want to get out along with our own people? Bill, it's, it's just heartbreaking to see the the suffering that's going on, the panic, and it's it's hard not to feel a little bit responsible as as the United States. Um, and again, I, let's just say that going to zero that was what our political leadership decided to do, and that was what a couple of administrations wanted to do. Uh, but again, it was the execution of, of that strategy. Um, I, I didn't agree with it. I, I think that small presence was worth uh, the resources, but. Um, that set aside, we, we could have done this a little bit better, planned a little better. These were not surprises. These, these, this result uh, from, the, you know, from the vacuum that we created was, was predictable. Um, and, and a little better planning you know, with our allies and partners, especially uh, better communication strategy, I, I think could have made a, it would never be easy and it would be hard on the Afghan people, but maybe we could have reduced the, the, the humanitarian crisis that's, that, that's unfolding before our eyes with, with a little better um, and deliberate planning. Joe, there was a piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, the headline, America's warrior class contends with the abject failure of its Afghanistan project. Uh, it quoted an Army lieutenant colonel named Jason Dempsey, um, who the article said did two uh, tours of duty in Afghanistan. And here's what the lieutenant colonel said, and I quote, we assume the rest of the world saw us as we saw ourselves, and we believe that we could shape the world in our image using our own guns and our own money. Yeah, Jason Dempsey is a friend of mine and a lot of respect for him. He did some tough tours over there. Um, and, you know, this is a this is a challenge that the United States has uh, when we try to train and advise uh, other nations forces. We, we do tend to 
trained and developed in, in, in our image at some level. Um, you know, not to sound elitist, but I, I come from a special forces background and, uh, you know, we, we take uh, training, advising, host nation units, that's our bread and butter mission. And that's what we, we, we sign up for. Um, but we, we've seen a lot of the training of, of the Afghan forces are done by regular forces that, that just, you know, understand they don't, they don't have the background and it's a really complex uh, uh, challenge to, to do. Um, but yeah, Jason, Dem Colonel Dempsey, uh, have to agree with that to, at some level. You know, we, we did create an Afghan army that uh, looked more like us than probably was appropriate for the conditions and the threat that they were they were facing. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty. A lot of things we could have done differently as far as how we uh, trained and, and, and equipped the, the, these forces. But it really, a lot of it was, uh, and, and I can take a break if you want to steer to other, other direction, but it was not just how we trained the military. I mean, the, the finest military anywhere, you know, there's a saying in counterinsurgency that counterinsurgency can only be as good as the government it supports. You know, at the end of the day, the, the, the central government in, in Afghanistan was just really not viewed as, you know, legitimate uh, in the eyes of the people. So the, 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 the institutions that represented that illegitimate government, like the army and the police were also viewed as illegitimate in the eyes of the people in, in the rural areas. So that, that was just a big challenge. And, and you know, in, in recent months and years, uh, a lot more corruption in the ranks. We, we've seen the senior ranks in the military. So, mm -hmm. so maybe this collapse was, was less of a surprise than, than, than many might, might, might um, think, think it was, given, given that. Yeah, it's if you look at the timeline for Vietnam, Joe, I believe uh, the ceasefire was signed in January of 1973. And then we evacuate the embassy, I think, in April of 1975. So there's a two year and three month difference between the two. This timeline in Afghanistan, though, is much quicker. It's not years and months. It's a matter of weeks. So why why the accelerated pace in this situation? The, the pace to, to, to pull our forces out, Bill, I just want to make sure I got the right. Both pulling out the forces, but also just the collapse of the country. In other words, Vietnam yeah. Vietnam took a while to play out. It wasn't as if we pulled out and then immediately the North, the North Vietnamese were in Saigon. It took a couple of years for that to happen. But here it's only taken a matter of weeks for the Taliban to, to get into Kabul. Yeah, and I think the Taliban, as I understand it, and you know, I'm not privy to classified material these days, but uh, they've been preparing for this and, and negotiating it. it you know, at multiple levels, province, district, and, and below, for just this this timing, anticipating and and Afghanistan, uh, you know, has a long history of uh, you know local leaders switching sides when it's their interest to do so. So I think the Taliban probably primed the pump and said, "Hey, when the Americans leave, when they no longer have a decisive air support to, to back up the Afghan army, we're going to give you a choice. You know, you can die at our hands or suffer our hands, or you can kind of capitulate and maybe." negotiate a better, better future. So I think, I don't think it was a cold start from three weeks, from a few weeks ago. I think the Taliban have been, have been preparing for this day for some time and been, been negotiating with leaders at multiple levels. And when, when the U S forces left, when the air power left, that's when, that's when it, it everything unraveled because the, you know, there was, there was the glue that was holding that army together um, and, and keeping the Taliban at bay had, had left with, with the last, you know, U S aircraft and, and, and air support. Let's talk about the Taliban's for a second, Joe. Uh, my understanding is Taliban's are mostly Pashtuns, which is the largest ethnic group in the country. Uh, I believe in Pashto, Taliban means student. Um, I'm not sure that what it, they're a student of necessarily, but that's what the word translates. Um, Joe, how are they funded and where do they get their weapons? Yeah, so, you know, we use a euphemism in, in Afghanistan. There's small T Taliban and large T Taliban. Um, there's this, there are the groups of... Uh, you know, largely unemployed young men with with not a lot of other options in in, in Afghanistan locals that uh, that right. are, you know, we call them. We used to call them the small T Taliban. Uh, but but there are, there are some more ideologically committed Taliban that receive training in, in Pakistan or a little more ideologically uh, 
committed. They really do want to see a, an Islamic state established, you know, in Afghanistan and beyond. So, um, but you know, the, there's a lot of different funding sources. Certainly, Taliban self funds themselves through illicit activities like the drug trade and and, right. and human trafficking and, and other areas. Um, but then there's you know th there are from a various a range of sources. Uh, you know, they'll go back to Pakistan and get get fed and armed and indoctrinated and. Uh, they'll come back in the fighting season and, and fight, and then they'll go back. Um, so you, you get you get a range of different sources uh, of, of funding and support. Um, and I think we're going to see uh, you know, certain some of those illicit activities that, that we're so concerned about are going to going to have a resurgence uh, here here now that the Taliban are back in charge. Right. So we've already seen reports that they're going door to door in, Ka in Kabul and looking for you know locals who are pro American uh, American sympathizers, if you will. Uh, but Joe, what about the larger picture? For example, I think one thing people don't understand maybe is that um, we succeeded in Afghanistan in one regard. That's women. Uh, women now have uh, they've assumed public positions not just in Kabul but in smaller cities around Afghanistan. Uh, women are free to move around. Women can go to universities. They can get educations. Uh, so you have women who have been, for the better lack of a better word, liberated. Uh, at the same time, you have a different society. Joe, uh, cell phones are now present in Afghanistan. Social media is not uncommon, if you will. Um, how is the Taliban going to clamp down on all of this? I mean, first of all, are they going to castigate women, throw them back into the dark age? And are they going to take away cell phones and cut off the Internet? Bill, I mean, I, I just despite their public pronouncements now, I mean, these, these are the same. This is the same group that, that ruled Afghanistan, you know, like the dark ages in, in the 90s. So I'm, I'm afraid that it may not be immediate, but I see certainly a, a not so uh, slow drift back to uh, that how the Taliban has demonstrated that they rule. That certainly, uh, you know, their interpretation of, of Sharia and an Islamic law is is it's not very encouraging for women. I, I don't think you'll see women back to school. I think you'll see the burqas coming back um, and all the other horrible uh, things that come with sh Sharia law. So, but this is one of the many very sad things. And and Bill, thanks for pointing this out. And people say, we, what did we accomplish in Afghanistan? I mean, it's uh, that is one example of uh, we really did improve the lives of, of Afghans uh, significantly, going from zero percent educated women to well over 50. I think we added 10 years to their life expectancy, um, you know, which is uh, not, not insignificant. So, but every woman in Afghanistan and everyone who has a woman they care about, which is the entire country, should be very concerned about uh, the, the transition of power back to the Taliban. Okay, let's talk about another uh, successful talking point regarding Afghanistan, and that's Al Qaeda. Uh, more to the point, the crushing of Al Qaeda. Uh, does Al Qaeda now come rolling back into Afghanistan now that it has a friendly regime? Well, you know, we know that Taliban has maintained relationships with Al Qaeda, and certainly Al Qaeda is it's metastasized. It's not, you know, it's they can choose from other places to, to potentially get safe haven. But mm -hmm. certainly, objectively speaking, we're at much we're at a higher risk now. The Taliban are, despite what they say, it's I think the conditions for for terrorist safe havens to, to include with Al Qaeda is is going to be greatly increased uh, with, with the new 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 regime just just based on their track record. I mean, what nothing's really changed. You know, there's there's a there's no reason to believe that the conditions will not once again favor a resurgence or at least a safe haven for, for Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. You know, it's interesting, Joe. So the Biden administration pegged the pullout in part on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, there's an anniversary in Afghanistan this Thursday. It's uh, Independence Day in Afghanistan, which is the celebration of the, um, the uh, end of colonial rule in 1919. Uh, do you think the Taliban decided to move into Kabul sooner rather than later? In other words, they could have moved into Kabul on that Thursday, on the day of the on, on Independence Day. It would have been very symbolic uh, to have done so. Instead, they went in a couple of days earlier. Do you think they waited? Uh, do you think 
think they did not choose to wait and do that because they weren't looking at the symbolism or perhaps they were thinking that the sooner they went into Kabul, the greater disarray they throw Afghanistan into and the worse it makes America look. So I, I think they went into Kabul as soon as they felt like they could, you know, as soon as the conditions were such that they felt like they could successfully t- take it over. And I think it sends a bigger statement to, to, to see the collapse of, of Afghanistan and take over with, with speed than to wait for a, a significant a date in the calendar. I, I think it sends a bigger signal on, on that holiday to be firmly in, uh, in charge of the country. And, and again, I think they were going to take, they were going to take down, they were going to take over as soon as they were able to. And I, I think that, they weren't going to wait. And they were able to because of you know, this security vacuum that, that was created. Right. Let's go back to the warrior class for a second, Joe. You served in Afghanistan. H.R. McMaster served in Afghanistan. Jim Mattis uh, served in Afghanistan. Hoover Fellows all. Um, I'm not sure the three of you guys see the world the same on all topics. I'm not sure maybe you see Afghanistan all the same. But uh, having fought there, having served in there, worked with people, how do you process what's going on? Well, it's hard. And, and again, I, I, General Mattis and General McMaster were extraordinary leaders and did just amazing work for, for our country and our allies and partners in Afghanistan. I had the privilege of uh, seeing both of them over there, uh, H.R. McMaster especially. Um, um, but how we see, again, it's separating the personal from the, the professional. I think we all, it hurts all of us. I, it hurt all Americans. It hurts every citizen to see what's going to happen in Afghanistan. And uh, yeah. uh, again, it doesn't mean that the U.S. is responsible forever. So processing, I think, I think at the end of the day, we realize, you know, we don't want, we're not going to maintain a forever presence, but, but I think I would never speak for General Mattis or General McMaster, but, but uh, having spoken with them and, and seen what they've written, I think we would all share a concern that uh, say what you will about the decision to, to go to zero, the, the execution of this strategy uh, was just dismal. Uh, it didn't have to be this, this way. And I, I think, uh, uh, Americans, uh, we could have done better uh, in, in this. This and it's not easy, and I, and I hate to judge currently serving political or military leaders, um, but uh, I think objectively speaking, we, we could have had a better plan and executed better uh, exit strategy to zero. Okay, we are a nation of armchair quarterbacks. Let's play armchair quarterback for a second here. Uh, in terms of just getting out more cleanly, what should we have done differently, Joe? Yeah, and again, it's easy. Like back to armchair quarterback. It, it, it's there's no easy way out, but but I think a little bit better uh, coordination with our allies and partners, uh, certainly host nation. Um, mm-hmm. It should be no, and you know you saw the last few weeks where we kind of all of a sudden we're we're out of Bagram Air Force Base, for example. Right. Um, I, again, there's no easy way out, but I think there's a there's a there's a less painful way out. I think uh, by, by a little better coordination, uh, no one should have been surprised. And again, I, I literally I, I, there's so many people judging this, and I, I don't want to join that course it's it's a big target this isn't easy but um again i just i just think we probably had a, enough intelligence to anticipate some of the taliban's moves perhaps um maybe a little bit more deliberate planning more coordination a little better communication strategy okay so that's least a kind of big uh, question in this conversation joe you know for decades historians have argued a question that question is who lost china and uh, it's a fascinating topic to look into uh, some people say George Marshall lost China because he failed to broker a peace between uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. Uh, some historians say that war there was inevitable, a civil war was going to happen anyway because of the ideological differences. Some people say it was uh, you know, the Truman um, you know, foreign policy apparatus, what have you. It became a big political issue, Joe, in the early 1950s with that question, who lost China? So um, here we are in August of 2021, Joe, and the question is, who lost Afghanistan? Well, as hard as it is to say... Uh... Bill, you know, we, we, uh, we, the United States and the U.S.-led coalition certainly had a, a lot of missteps. I mean, 
you go back to the early days, I mean, arguably one of those first few weeks, boy, that we, uh, we had a clear mission, you know, the, literally the, the twin towers were still smoking in New York city. And we sent, you know, special forces and CIA operatives in there that, that, you know, impressively took down and routed the Taliban and drove them from power. So, you know, we made one Afghanistan in those weeks, but that's certainly a, the, the, the succession of, 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 of missteps after that, you know, perhaps, uh, you can argue we, we got stretched a little bit thin when we, when we shifted emphasis to, to Iraq. That, that's uh, certainly one, one area misstep. You could argue that, uh, you know, going from a, a CT mission, pushing out Al-Qaeda to nation building and, and bringing democracy, that was just a way of huge overstretch. Um, you know, the next administration uh, setting a timeline on when we're going to depart, you know, when we had that surge uh, that Obama, President Obama mentioned. And certainly, I, I, you know, I think President Trump also identifying a date that we're going to go to zero, not not helpful, and, and President Biden executing that that plan, and, and then the actual execution being done in, in a way that just, um, you know, which we discussed was was just just uh, suboptimal <laughs> to, to be nice. So who lost it? Um, at the end of the day, it's you know I, I mentioned that counterinsurgency can only be as good as the government supports, and no matter what we did in these last decades, at the end of the day that 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 central government in, in Afghanistan was not viewed as, 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 as legitimate. And uh, I would say of, of all the culprits, certainly uh, corruption and, and illegitimacy of the, of the Afghan government. Um, but, you know, we have to take responsibility. There, there was, uh, you know, and this is maybe a stretch, you know, but I'm in the military. We, we want to win. And we, it's hard for us to accept that we're, if we're, if we're all in to win it, that we're not. And, and, and you know, some, the saying is that we fought, we didn't fight a 20 year war there. We fought 21 year wars. And, 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 and cut me off if you want to switch topics here, but you know, a, a unit goes in Afghanistan and says, we got a year go. And, and you just, you, you want to believe that we can do it. And then at the end of the year, you want to want to point to some successes. Um, but the, the truth is uh, at the end, if we weren't building sustainable capabilities in Afghanistan where they could defend themselves and, and prevent a, t- a Taliban resurgence without the United States, then we weren't uh, focusing on in the right areas. And, and I think a lot of that was beyond the military security. It was on governance um, that, that, that we needed to, to, to work on, and we have our limitations as 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 foreigners and what we can do there. So, so that's a long-winded way of saying Bill, uh, we're not going to pin the blame on any one administration, any one individual. Um, it, it was spread across uh, a lot of, uh, and let me just you know speak for the military. These, these are well-intended, brave young men and women doing their very best. So I, I, I will say the blame is not on the, the the individual soldiers and Marines and sailors out there. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, we 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 probably took on too too much. And, uh, and, and realized that at the end of the day, it was, it was not us to win or lose. It was as on the Afghans. And they, they kind of showed us that you know, they weren't able to, 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 to defend themselves, uh, at least uh, against the Taliban in this case. And what's your sense, Joe, as to why they just didn't want to fight harder for their freedom? I mean, they, they, they were weaponized. They had good technology. I, I think I saw a story where the Taliban now have something like 166 uh, Black Hawk helicopters in their yeah. possession. Uh, I've seen other stories where Afghan forces uh, uh, hot-footed it to the Iran border. So now Iran is in possession of nice cutting-edge military technology. That's a, that's a lovely thought as well. But why being well-armed and trained and having years to think about this and knowing the horrors of what happens when the Taliban take over, why didn't they literally fight to the death? Again, a- Afghanistan, it, it's a pretty fractured country. You know, it's, it's really, yeah. it's, as we know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's the, the sense that, I, you know, I traveled all over that country and, and there wasn't a sense that the central government really was really a legitimate government. So I think when, uh, it was literally when, the, the, when we left and when, air, when we no longer was able to back up the Afghan military with, with, with credible air support, I think uh, leaders at every level, including military commanders, saw, saw the end in sight. And then it was time to, 
look out for number one and, and cut a deal. Um, I mean, fight for what? I, I don't think, I think there was a recognition w- without the kind of combat enablers. And then this is one of our mistakes. You know, if, if we were, you know, if we, we knew the Afghan military was dependent on, on U.S. combat enablers like, like, like aviation. Right. Um, but it's, it's hard to keep fighting when you, when you know that, 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 what, that some of the critical assets that you need to, to succeed are, are no longer there. Um, and maybe uh, human nature, or certainly in Afghanistan, especially to, to cut a deal that, that gives you something better than fighting to the death. Now, we leave the country, Joe, and uh, we lose a lot of assets. Uh, some are uh, taken into custody by the Taliban. Others, uh, if they're lucky, they get out of the country. Um, so I'm curious as to what kind of intelligence we will have on the ground moving forward in Afghanistan, Joe. In other words, if Afghanistan does become a, a, a hotbed, a safe harbor for terrorism, how are we going to know that? Yeah, and but this is a real challenge for us because I think the plan now is they use the term offshore counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. This is really challenging. Think about when we lose our, our, our presence. We've got to launch, you know, from bases in the, across the Middle East, like, like the UAE and Qatar. Uh, that, that's a long flight. And to maintain the, you know, CT, counterterrorism, what's kind of what's called like persistent ISR. You, you want to have a constant uh, um, surveillance over areas. Really hard to do from a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember, we no longer have uh, any allies with us. You know, so uh, it, it wasn't just the 2,500 American soldiers there, but it was the, I think it was up to 7,000 NATO forces and, and, and many of the contractors that, that kept our neighbors like the Air, their Air, Air Force working. Um, so it's going to be really hard. And, and we, it's really hard to just choose not to, if it's a real threat, we're going to have to uh, interdict it. And it's going to be a lot harder there w- without the, uh, the presence. Um, but l- let's hope we can do it. And, and, you know, we've got amazing capabilities to, to do this you know, from afar, but it's, it's really challenging. And my personal expectation is we're going to lose, lose uh, situation awareness and it's going to uh, make it easier for, for some terrorist groups to, uh, to, to operate and, and to, to, to get, get safe haven. Do we have to consider Joe's strategy of how to get assets back into Afghanistan, yeah. perhaps Pakistan, which then begs the question, Joe, of what is our relationship with Pakistan right now? Yeah, oh, it's tough. You know, I, I think, uh, the last administration initiated a little bit more accountability with with the Pakistan. You know, it's long overdue. Uh-huh. You know, I, I I've seen t- Taliban fighters, uh, you know, fighting Americans and retreat to safe haven in, in Pakistan to to, to re- rearm and regroup and come back and kill us at a later date. Um, our our relationship with Pakistan is is not very good right now. They're certainly sliding to China. Um, and Pakistan's certainly happy with recent events. You know, they're, they're, I think they're kind of thrilled that there's a, an Islamic state on their border now and right. you know, given all the influence they have in the Taliban. So we, we, we don't have a good relationship with, with Pakistan. And, and now with the fall of, of, of the Afghan government and the rise of the Taliban, that, that's going to be even more and more difficult for us. Um, you know, Pakistan's happy, China's happy, even Russia's happy. But uh, uh, we're going to have to, you know, resurrect some semblance of relationship with Pakistan if we can. But I'm not very optimistic. Okay, let's talk about the biggest kid in the neighborhood, and that's China. What is China's role with Afghanistan now? Well, you know, China's not too judgmental of countries as far as, uh, you know, their form of governance, their human rights record. Um, I think, uh, you know, they they had a high level meeting just just, you know, less than a month ago. I, I think China has come on record to welcome the new government and looking forward to working with them. I think uh, you'll see China being very involved in the in the reconstruction and, and the investment activities. You know, the right. you know, in, in my last job, I, I traveled a lot in the region, saw just how nefarious Chinese investment can be. Um, and they, they don't do it for, they're always looking out for number one. And, and I think we'll see a lot of more Chinese influence in Afghanistan now, a lot of the big contracts and reconstruction go, going to China and a lot more strings attached. And I think they're looking forward to having this. And, and, and huge, huge public 
you know, in the great power competition level, China can point to this as U.S. is not reliable. You know, look, you hit your wagon in the United States, look what happens. You know, and if we want to build another coalition to, to compete with China, um, I think it's, it's, it's certainly not helpful, uh, this precedent. Would the Taliban have an interest, Joe, in the plight of the Uyghurs? You know, any oppressed uh, Islamic group is, is, is going to have a certain sympathy, I think, for other Muslims. Um, but I think they're going to be very cautious about you know, just at the geopolitical level, realpolitik. They're probably not going to want to upset China by making any kind of I think they're going to pass on that personally. Um, I, I think they, they, they gain more by uh, having China uh, cooperating with China than, you know, than alienating it through, through by pointing out some of the, the you know, horrific, uh, egregious abuses of, against the Uyghurs. And what about Russia, Joe? Vladimir Putin, does he have any interest in Afghanistan or uh, once burned, twice shy? You know, I mean, again, they love to see the U.S. look bad. Uh, I think that's a shared interest of Russia and China and Pakistan and other other countries. Um, uh, you know, their their embassies open there. Uh, I, I, you know, they've got obviously their own challenging history uh, in Afghanistan, but but I think they're looking forward to having a a, a better relationship. Uh, certainly, just a. Uh, the fact that the U.S. is out is, is something that is, is in, the, in Russia's interests. Um, and I think they're going to look for opportunities to, to exploit that. OK, so as I mentioned, Joe, we are approaching the, uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You're already seeing stories in uh, liberal media outlets, um, the same kind of drumbeat that the war on terror, in retrospect, was a mistake. A mistake to go into Iraq and maybe a mistake to go into Afghanistan as well. How, how do you push back against Afghanistan? Sure. You know, I mean, I think Iraq is an easier case to make that that was not directly connected to the terrorist threat. You know, and a, a lot of a lot of debate on that, but but easy to say that maybe Iraq was a, was a, a distraction. But I think Afghanistan is certainly in the fall of 2001, clearly a, a safe haven for Al Qaeda. Those you know those terrorists that brought us you know the horrific events of 9/11, and I think uh, uh, pushing them out and, and denying the safe haven at that time was the right thing to do. I think we had the entire international community. Uh, behind us there. So I think liberal conservative and anyone's got to recognize that, that responding to the 9-11 attacks in Afghanistan was probably the right thing to do. That's where then the missteps happened after that, you know, uh, was when we, we kind of expanded our mission in Afghanistan, um, uh, under-resourced our mission in Afghanistan when we, when we went into Iraq, and maybe later by setting some 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 timelines for, for, for departure by President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden, that I think uh, uh, played into the, the Taliban's uh, favor. You know, they, the saying is they have the watch, you know, we have the watches, they have the time. Um, so, yeah, and, and we don't get to decide that the war on terror is over. Uh, but when we're just, you know, tomorrow could be another horrific terrorist attack, you know, and we could, we could second guess ourselves, you know. Um, so the fact that we have not experienced a catastrophic terrorist attack since 9-11 is, is, is a credit to all the, a lot of hard work by uh, U.S. allies and partners and host nation forces around the world and the vigilance that we've, we've maintained. Um, you know, back in the day when I was actually privy to some classified work, there, there's a lot of uh, planned attacks that were foiled, thanks to a lot of hard work by, by men and women in, in the military and law enforcement and other, other agencies working hard. So let's hope we don't have another catastrophic terrorist event, but let's also hope that, you know, some of our deliberate decisions did, didn't contribute to, to, to those attacks being, being uh, successfully carried out. So, Joe, I would point out that it's easy for a present-day member of Congress to criticize the war on terror retrospect because we go back to the actual votes in uh, 2001. I think the Afghanistan use of force resolution, Joe, I think it was 99 to zip in the Senate. And if I'm not mistaken, I think one member of, of the House, and Barbara Lee here in California, the Bay Area, voted against it. Otherwise, every member of Congress supported this. So uh, if you were you know, in Congress back then, I would include one Joe Biden. Um, 
kind of, you know, really just, you know, revisionist thinking to say this is a mistake now. Uh, but I would note that uh, Tim Kaine, Senator from Virginia, Joe, ran with Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016. Uh, he is uh, trying to push in Congress. He wants to repeal the uh, authorizations for use of military force, the AUMF. Uh, this, Joe, raises a question of balance of power in Washington when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, presidents can use AUMF to engage in operations overseas, and Senator Kane and his uh, friends in Congress want to take this away. So this raises the question, Joe, of, I hate to lay out these scenarios, but God forbid the United States is attacked in a similar fashion to 911, and we want to respond. Um, what is that response going to look like now that, number one, we have this you know, debacle unfolding in Afghanistan, but second, you do have this, you know, this, this group mentality in Congress, or at least in the Democratic side of Congress, that America should not be involved in other nations? Yeah, I mean, I, we can't predict the next conflict or the, or the next yeah. crisis where we're going to need to uh, act decisively with, with, with military force. Right. Um, I, I personally think the commander-in-chief should have the, uh, you know, our current commander-in-chief, President Biden should ha should have the ability to, to to exercise military force when it's in our national interest, and then try to get the congressional oversight there as soon as possible. Um, you know, let, let's let's not act with impunity. But but I do think uh, there are going to be times where our, our vital interests are threatened to the point where a, a, a decisive military response is is warranted, and our commander in chief needs needs to have that flexibility. Uh, and it's not a partisan thing. I mean, whoever's in the White House, I think you know, our commander in chief, whoever he or she may be, should, should have that authority, in my opinion. Uh, but certainly, uh, it should be done carefully, and, and congressional oversight should be should be brought to bear as, as soon as possible as far as what, what comes next. Yeah, let me amend something I just said, Joe. I, I, I pinned this on Democrats in Congress. Uh, this is a bipartisan problem in America. Uh, it's not just Democrats in Congress uh, who look at the who look at the world this way. Uh, there's also a wing of Republicans who see the world this way. Donald Trump ran on this in uh, in uh, in 2016. No more nation building. Uh, no more forever wars. Uh, Patrick J. Buchanan, who's kind of the uh, the godfather of this uh, school of thought among conservatives, he was campaigning on this all the way back in 1992. America cannot be fighting overseas, but it does beg a question, Joe, of what our involvement in the world is going to look like in two ways. Number one, there is just actual the physical use of American force overseas, the physical presence of America overseas. But second, Joe, kind of the psychological uh, aspect here as well. And the idea that America is weak, America quits, America can be humiliated. Yeah, and I'm concerned about that, Bill. And again, I, you know, I, I, I pay taxes. I, I have a son that at West Point is going to be in harm's way, potentially. I, I've got a I don't want to see America get dragged into wars. It doesn't have to be dragged into. Um, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, the, the strength of America's ability to, to lead a coalition of the willing who have a shared interest in certain outcomes or a shared vision for how we want our, our world to look like. So I am, I am more concerned about uh, U.S. losing its ability to lead a coalition of the willing. Um, and I, I don't think there's there's very few cases where the U.S. should be acting unilaterally abroad. You know, we, we always should be working with allies and partners. And, and we, we've been able to do that in the past. But I do think uh, recent events are going to going to it's going to be, be a bit of a bit of a bit of a black eye. Um, I think we're still our track record is still such that we, we can exercise that leadership. But th th this th this week and the coming weeks are are not going to be helpful. Yeah, but I guess the question, Joe, is um, if we do get involved, though, in operations, is it just going to be drone strikes and death from above, uh, things which are not high risk at the end of the day? What's it going to take to actually put boots on the ground in another country? It, I mean, it just depends on the conditions, Bill. I'm not, not trying to punt here. Uh, certainly. But, but, uh, but no, but no, but, you know, the condition I'm getting at is do we have to be hit first before we hit back? Well, let's hope not. I mean, let's hope if we have intelligence that um, we, we know something 
a, a grave threat can be interdicted and, and, and it's the, 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 it's, it's worth the, the cost. So let, let's maintain that flexibility. Um, um, it, but, but let's just be very, very cautious with it. And boy, you know, this decision to commit, you know, young men and women in harm's way, it's, 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 boy, it's, it's tough, you know, and every president that's have to done that, to do that, I, I can only imagine that, that, that kind of a stress. And I, and I've seen it at lower levels in the military. Um, but no, I think we need to maintain those capabilities. I think, you know, we're not there yet where we can achieve our objectives without having some physical presence of, of U.S. troops, and we need to maintain that capability. You know, let's use technology where we can, but still, I think uh, we're not so advanced yet where, you know, the, the, the U.S. soldier and, and a coalition, it, it, you know, on the ground is, is going to be a, a critical part of, of, of a successful strategy in many cases. So, Joe, the story's been told to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, Jim Mattis retires the military. And he just cashes in very unceremoniously, and then he gets in a car and he starts driving around the country, and he makes it a point to visit with Gold Star families and talk to them about their about the you know the children who sacrificed for the country. Um, I assume that's a true story. I don't think anyone would make that up. But if you had to sit down with a Gold Star family right now, someone who lost a son or a daughter in Afghanistan, how would you explain what's going on to them? Yeah. And first, we'll, let me just emphasize what an incredible leader and class act, you know, uh, general retired Jim Mattis is he did exactly that. You know, I, he drives alone to visit these families and that's, and what do you say? Uh, I think showing up and th that's a huge gesture in itself. I, I don't know that you're ever going to satisfy a grieving family, uh, a, a mother who's lost a son or daughter. Um, <clears throat> so I, you know, I think there's, um, I will never question the U.S.'s intentions in this war. I think we certainly were well intended throughout. Um, what's bad about wanting to bring freedoms and and and, and a better better quality of life to to, to uh, you know millions in, in in a country? But but maybe the reality is it just wasn't possible and it wasn't for us to do. So there's no easy conversation with the Gold Star family, uh, Bill. But I think showing up there and expressing, you know, thanking them for their sacrifice. Uh, you know, I, I just don't think there's any way you're going to go in there and, and win a debate. <laughs> I think you just. Uh, you hug it out and, and you say that, you know, our, our country is worth supporting and, and your son or daughter service was not a waste um, because we're because of sacrifices of young men and women like that. We're in a position to, yeah. you know, to try to do good in the next next time. And we'll have to learn some lessons from, from how, how we've operated in the past. Right. So as we're doing this, Joe, I confess I have a TV on in the background. It's on mute so you can't hear it. Uh, but the TV just showed an image of a helicopter on a roof in uh, Kabul, and they did a side by side and they showed a helicopter on the roof in Saigon in 1975. Uh, so it's very tempting to do the Vietnam parallel right now. But uh, you study military history. Is Vietnam the exact parallel here? Or can you think of another example of a, of a global power, a superpower that had just kind of a messy departure like this? I mean, I've seen those pictures. It's 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 a tough image. I mean, obviously, very very different conflicts, different times, different conditions. Um, I think the parallel is, uh, you know, the U.S. took took a. It's not the rep. It, it's it's not the image we want to be associated with with United States of America. Um, certainly, when we want to be viewed as a, a credible partner, a reliable partner, uh, a, a leader of a coalition, um, and uh, you know, I think we're going to be okay. Uh, but but this 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 is. Certainly, uh, watch how you see this presented by China and by Russia and, and other countries that maybe uh, who, who think less of us. Uh, this is uh, this is going to be something they're going to point to for some time. Um, 
So as far as other parallels, yeah, I mean, other countries have, you know, Russia had their own or Soviet Union had their own challenging departure from, from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's a tough image. You know, I think there are two, two Chinook helicopters too, very similar <laughs> airframes. Okay, final question for you, Joe. Uh, if this has not been the worst 48 hours of the Biden presidency, uh, it's going to certainly make the top 10 list by the time he leaves office. Uh, just everything from the chaotic situation, the visuals you see, his having promised a month ago this wouldn't be a repeat of Saigon. Um, his press secretary is away from the job right now and has just an away message on her emails, literally. And you've probably seen the uh, the photo of the president, Camp David, in the Situation Room, where he's sitting at a desk all by himself looking at screens. Uh, it's just a terrible visual of a president who's not surrounded by any advisors, who just looks very alone. Um, in fact, I, the White House understands this, and uh, they called an audible earlier today, and the president, uh, as we speak, is getting ready to address the nation. He's going to do it in about an hour now. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're in kind of an awkward situation right now uh, where we're talking about Joe Biden about to do a, a broadcast. By the time he listens, this, he will have given the speech. But Joe, um, I assume you're going to listen to what the president has to say, having served in Afghanistan, having studied this region as someone who cares very much about his country and America's image. What is it that you want the president to say? Well, Bill, I, I, that's a tough one. First of all, I, you know, it's tough. It's a tough job. And I, and I don't doubt President Biden's intentions. Uh, and I think when he made this decision, albeit against uh, some of the, the advice of his senior military and defense officials, he thought it was in the best interest of the United States. I disagree with the decision, but but I know that he made it probably in, you know, he, he thought it was in our best interest and I respect him for that. But this address, I think I acknowledge the sacrifices that the Americans made. Uh, it, so many Americans over the last 20 years. Um, beyond that, I could say you, you own his decision, own his decision. Do not try to point it to anyone, anywhere else. I mean, when you're in charge, a lot of, a lot of actions got you that level, but this is not a time to point fingers. Uh, this is a time to, to own your decision, explain why you made the decision. Uh, certainly, I think it's okay to admit that this is not how we hoped this would play out. It, it's, it's, it's how it did. It's my decision. I take responsibility for it. And I, I maintain that this is in the best interest of, 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 of the United States of America and, and her citizens. And I just think he needs to own it and, and, and move on. I, I don't think uh, it's time to make excuses or, or spread blame. I think it's time to sit here this is why I made this decision. It was my decision. And let's let's drive on. Maybe there's another component needs to throw into it, Joe, and that's sending a message that we're not going to be pushed around. And don't anybody think about using this as an excuse to launch an attack against us? I don't think so. Uh, you know, we've, we've got the most capable military in the world. And I, I think any administration is going to act in our in our self-interest, our national interest. And I, I think that, you know, even this administration has has, has reached out and, and exercised use some force on, on occasion that, that, that just reminds people that we, we have a potent military and we're going to use it to defend our national interests. So, so I don't think so. Uh, I, you know, this, this played out over 20 years. I think the United States capabilities still re- reach out and, and, and exercise military force when its interests are threatened, I think are, are, are not in question. Okay. Well, Joe, I appreciate you doing the podcast today. Uh, I'd like to have you back soon under much more pleasant circumstances. But uh, again, uh, it's been quite a past few days for uh, the American people. And uh, uh, it's just very sad to see what's happened in Afghanistan. It is, Bill. Thanks for the chance to, to join you today. Okay, Joe, you take care. 
You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast. That address is www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Joe Felter and his colleagues your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. So long and see you soon. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.